Let me tell you a story, podcast number 63. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. Call me Ishmael. It was the age of wisdom. Some years ago, it was the age of never mind it is a how truth long it was. You don't know about me without you. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story with your hosts, Steve and Becky Lyles. Settle back into your seat, step onto your favorite fitness machine, or lace up your walking shoes, and enjoy stories from a variety of genres and authors. Hi, this is Steve. Hi, this is Becky. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story. Steve will get back to Treasure Island this week, and I'll continue with Winds of Wyoming. We'll also read more Kid Chuckles and a farm story by Danny Clark titled The Slice, which I'm sure you'll enjoy. Chapter 17, narrative continued by the doctor. The Jolly Boat's last trip. This fifth trip was quite different from any of the others. In the first place, the little gallopot of a boat that we were in was gravely overloaded. Five grown men and three of them, Trelawney, Redruth, and the captain, over six feet high, was already more than she was meant to carry. Add to that the powder pork, and bread bags. The gunwale was lipping astern. Several times we shipped a little water, and my breeches and the tails of my coat were all soaking wet before we had gone a hundred yards. The captain made us trim the boat, and we got her to lie a little more evenly. All the same, we were afraid to breathe. In the second place, the ebb was now making a strong rippling current running westward through the basin, and then southward and seaward down the straits by which we had entered in the morning. Even the ripples were a danger to our overloaded craft, but the worst of it was that we were swept out of our true course and away from our proper landing place behind the point. If we let the current have its way, we should come ashore beside the gigs, where the pirates might appear at any moment. "'I cannot keep her head for the stockade, sir,' said I to the captain. I was steering while he and Redruth, two fresh men, were at the oars. The tide keeps washing her down. Could you pull a little stronger? Not without swamping the boat, said he. You must bear up, sir, if you please. Bear up until you see you're gaining. I tried and found by experiment that the tide kept sweeping us westward until I had laid her head due east, or just about right angles to the way we ought to go. We'll never get ashore at this rate, said I. If it's the only course that we can lie, sir, we must even lie it, returned the captain. We must keep upstream. You see, sir, he went on, if once we drop to leeward of the landing place, it's hard to say where we should get ashore, besides the chance of being boarded by the gigs. Whereas the way we go... The current must slacken, and then we can dodge back along the shore. The current's less already, sir, said the man Gray, who was sitting in the foresheets. You can ease her off a bit. Thank you, my man, said I, quite as if nothing had happened, for we had all quietly made up our minds to treat him like one of ourselves. Suddenly the captain spoke up again, and I thought his voice was a little changed. The gun! said he. I have thought of that, said I, for I made sure he was thinking of a bombardment of the fort. 
They should never get the gun ashore, and if they did, they could never haul it through the woods. Look astern, doctor, replied the captain. We had entirely forgotten the long nine, and there, to our horror, were the five rogues busy about her, getting off her jacket, as they called the stout tarpaulin cover under which she sailed. Not only that, but it flashed into my mind at the same moment that the round shot and the powder for the gun had been left behind, and a stroke with an axe would put it all into the possession of the evil ones aboard. Israel was Flint's gunner, said Gray, hoarsely. At any risk, we put the boat's head direct for the landing place. By this time, we had got so far out of the run of the current that we kept steerage way even at our necessarily gentle rate of rowing, and I could keep her steady for the goal. But the worst of it was that with the course I now held, we turned our broadside instead of our stern to the Hispaniola and offered a target like a barn door. I could hear, as well as see, that brandy-faced rascal Israel Hands plumbing down a round shot on the deck. "'Who's the best shot?' asked the captain. "'Mr. Trelawney, out and away,' said I. "'Mr. Trelawney, would you please pick me off one of these men, sir?' "'Hands, if possible,' said the captain. Trelawney was as cool as steel. He looked at the priming of his gun. "'Now,' cried the captain, "'easy with that gun, sir, or you'll swamp the boat. "'All hands stand by to trim her when he aims.' The squire raised his gun, the rowing ceased, and we leaned over to the other side to keep the balance, and all was so nicely contrived that we did not ship a drop. They had the gun by this time, slewed round upon the swivel, and Hans, who was at the muzzle with the rammer, was, in consequence, the most exposed. However, we had no luck, for just as Trelawney fired, down he stooped, the ball whistled over him, and it was one of the other four who fell. The cry he gave was echoed not only by his companions on board, but by a great number of voices from the shore. And looking in that direction, I saw the other pirates trooping out from among the trees and tumbling into their places in the boats. "'Here come the gigs, sir,' said I. "'Give way, then,' cried the captain. "'We mustn't mind if we swamp her now.' If we can't get ashore, all's up. Only one of the gigs is being manned, sir, I added. The crew of the other most likely going round by shore to cut us off. They'll have a hot run, sir, returned the captain. Jack ashore, you know. It's not them, I mind. It's the round shot. Carpet bowls. My lady's maid couldn't miss. Tell us, squire, when you see the match and we'll hold water. In the meanwhile... We had been making headway at a good pace for a boat so overloaded, and we had shipped but little water in the process. We were now close in, thirty or forty strokes, and we should beach her, for the ebb had already disclosed a narrow belt of sand below the clustering trees. The gig was no longer to be feared. The little point had already concealed it from our eyes. The ebb tide, which had so cruelly delayed us, was now making reparation and delaying our assailants. The one source of danger was the gun. If I durst, said the captain, I'd stop and pick off another man. 
But it was plain that they meant nothing should delay their shot. They had never so much as looked at their fallen comrade, though he was not dead, and I could see him trying to crawl away. "'Ready!' cried the squire. "'Hold!' cried the captain, quick as an echo. And he and Redruth backed with a great heave that sent her stern bodily underwater. The report fell in at the, at the same instant of time. This was the first that Jim heard, the sound of the squire's shot not having reached him. Where the ball passed, not one of us precisely knew. But I fancy it must have been over our heads and that the wind of it may have contributed to our disaster. At any rate, the boat sank by the stern quite gently in three feet of water, leaving the captain and myself facing each other on our feet. The other three took complete headers and came up again, drenched and bubbling. So far, there was no great harm. No lives were lost, and we could wade ashore in safety. But there were all our stores at the bottom, and to make things worse, only two guns out of five remained in a state for service. Mine I had snatched from my knees and held over my head by a sort of instinct. As for the captain, he had carried his over his shoulders by a bandolier, and, like a wise man, lock uppermost. The other three had gone down with the boat. To add to our concern, we heard voices already drawing near us in the woods along the shore, and we had not only the danger of being cut off from the stockade in our half-crippled state, but the fear before us whether, if Hunter and Joyce were attacked by half a dozen, they would have the sense and conduct to stand firm. Hunter was steady, that we knew, Joyce was a doubtful case, a pleasant, polite man for a valet, and to brush one's clothes, but not entirely fitted for a man of war. With all this in our minds, we waded ashore as fast as we could, leaving behind us the poor jolly boat and a good half of all our powder and provisions. We are right in the middle of Chapter 16 of Winds of Wyoming. You may recall that in the first part of the chapter, Kate had been on a trail ride with Mike, and her horse had thrown her, and she'd been injured. So Mike went for help, but while he was gone, she had a couple of really terrifying experiences. But finally, she was able to fall asleep. So this picks up at that point. Later, how much later, she couldn't tell. Kate heard a twig snap. She lifted her head, but saw nothing of the inky black night, not even stars. Clouds must have moved in while she slept. The ground shook, and she heard sounds she couldn't decipher. She grabbed the revolver and sat up, barely breathing, nearly strangled by fright. When she heard the rhythmic beat of the horses trotting up the trail and saw a swaying shaft of light, she dropped the gun and fell back too spent to stay upright any longer. The horses stopped. A voice broke into the night. The first voice she'd heard in hours, and it was Mike's. Here's my marker. I'll cut the trees apart. She's on the other side. Kate closed her eyes. Thank you, God. In a moment, Mike was beside her, a flashlight in his hand. She couldn't hide her tears. He dropped the light and pulled her close. 
I'm so sorry it took me so long, Kate. My horse threw a shoe and I had to walk him partway. But I called the hospital the moment we got to the ranch. A life flight helicopter is on the way. Mike, though she sobbed and her teeth chattered, she tried to talk. I, I killed him. He rubbed her back. We brought more blankets and some hot pads. You'll feel better when we get you warmed up. No. She moaned, twisting her head back and forth. It's tramp. He looked around. Where is he? He should be taking care of you. She clutched his arm. I'm so sorry, Mike. For what? I killed Tramp. Something growled in the bushes. Her breath between words and sobs came in short, hiccuping gasps. And he ran after it. I tried to shoot high, but I lost my aim. She hiccuped again. I didn't mean to kill him. She felt his arm muscles stiffen and knew he finally understood. She began to cry harder. He lowered her to the ground. I forgot you shouldn't be sitting up. You need to lie flat. Her back was fine, but his dog wasn't. I wanted to scare the other animals instead. Her animal, whatever it was instead. She was crying so hard she could barely talk. Instead, I... First your brother, then your dad. Now, now honey is gone, and so is Tramp. I... Honey beat us back to the barn, just as I expected. And Tramp did what I left him here to do. Protect you. He saved my life. She moaned. Then I killed him. Calm down. He spoke above her head. You have the blankets, Cyrus? Yep. Emmanuel has the warming pads. Put the pads on top of these blankets, Mike said, and the other blankets on top of the pad. Cyrus knelt beside her. Mrs. D made these a couple years back. They're filled with rice. We keep some in the freezer and some ready to heat in the microwave. She felt something hot and heavy on her chest that smelled like food. Her thank you, spoken through hiccuping, chattering teeth, sounded like a foreign language. He laid two more hot pads across her torso. You won't thank me when I put the cold ones on your leg. Which leg is broken? She couldn't think clearly enough to answer. Mike spoke for her. Left. The cold packs hurt, but Kate focused on the delicious whirl of heat spinning through her upper body. They laid more blankets on her. Cyrus asked, Can you move your neck? She answered by moving her chin toward one shoulder, then the other. Good. Hold her head up, Mike, and I'll pour hot chocolate down her throat. You sure? he asked. I don't want to cause any more damage. My neck is okay, Kate wiped tears from her cheeks. I sat up several times while you were gone. Even so, we need to be careful. Mike slowly raised her head with one hand and held the light with the other. Though his warm hand felt wonderful, she was once more reminded of the prison infirmary and the confined helplessness she'd experienced while chained to a hospital bed and guarded by a correctional officer as a nameless doctor aborted her baby. She blinked. There it was again, her baby. Cyrus lifted the cup to her lips. Drink up. Startled by the rich smell of chocolate, she just looked at him. Go ahead, Kate. Mike put the flashlight on the ground and took the cup. You need to raise your core temperature. She drank, the compassion in his voice warming her heart as the silky liquid heated her ribs. Thank you, both of you. Drink it all, Cyrus commanded. She did, sip by sip, picturing ice shards shooting off her body 
and rocketing into the night. She finished with a whisper, I've never tasted anything so good in all my life. Mike laid her head down and tucked the blankets around her neck. You're not shivering as much. He sniffed, picked up the flashlight and aimed the beam at the ground. Strange. I smell flowers, but I don't see any. She smiled, remembering the colorful star in the shower of lavender. Cyrus stood. Can't help but say you Eastern girls are mighty uncoordinated. Mike grunted. That's not funny, Cyrus. She slipped her arm out from under the blankets to touch Cyrus's leg. I'm sorry I forgot lunch duty. She couldn't see his face, but his voice was gruff. That's a whole nother matter. He shifted out of her reach. Want me to go get the fire started for the copter boss? Yeah, Mike said we need to do that pronto. I made a fire pit in the clearing about a mile up the trail. The pilot ought to be able to see the blaze and land on the ledge. Do you think the EMTs will want to walk or ride? Hard to say, Cyrus said. I'll take all three horses just in case. He disappeared, but moments later he led the horses around Kate. Again, she felt the tremor and heard the drum of hoofs. The dust made her sneeze. Her head felt ready to burst. Mike spoke to the darkness. Manuel, light that lantern and come sit with Kate while I look for Tramp. Okay. Moments later, Manuel sat on the ground beside her, a propane lantern in his hand. Smells like my mom's closet. Kate smiled at the private joke between her and God. Mike stepped into the bushes. I won't be long. Kate heard him call for his dog, and her heart broke. She dreaded the moment he found his ever-present companion's mangled body. She turned to Manuel, grateful for a diversion from the sadness and the pain. I'm so glad you're here. When I'm alone with the forest noises, my imagination runs wild. The helicopter will be here soon to fly you to a hospital, Manuel said. Do you know where? Probably Rollins. That's where they took my sister when she got bit by a rattlesnake. Is she okay? Kate asked. Yeah, she's fine. They gave her antivenom and kept her overnight. Kate wondered how long she'd be hospitalized. Would she lose her job? Where would she go? She didn't want to return to Pittsburgh and the life she'd lived there. You want to talk about something? Manuel swung the lantern between his knees. It might help pass the time. That's a good idea. But I don't feel up to talking much, Kate said. Would you like to tell me about you and your family? He shrugged. There's not much to say. My father's family came from Mexico, but we've been here for four generations. My dad heard sheep not far from here, like my grandfather and great-grandfather before him. My mom, whose family settled in Arizona, makes jewelry and takes care of me and my brother and sister. What about you, Manuel? Do you plan to herd sheep for a livelihood? Good question. He swung the light back and forth. It's a family tradition, but... He leaned forward. I think sheep herding is boring. Is there something you'd rather do? Mike's voice, still calling Tramp, sounded far away. Kate shuddered. What if he found his dog half-eaten or encountered a wild animal gnawing on him? Help him, God, she prayed. Want more hot chocolate? Manuel reached for the flask. I'll take that along with some ibuprofen. 
She felt for the pill bottle near her leg and handed it to him. He shook the painkiller into her hand before awkwardly lifting her head and holding the hot chocolate to her mouth so she could swallow the pills. Despite his discomfort, she let him care for her. She felt too weak to even grasp a cup. Thank you, Manuel. You can't imagine how good that feels going down. After twisting the plug and cat back onto the thermos, Manuel set it on the ground next to the lantern. I don't want to be a sheeper, he said. Plus, I need to leave this area. I'm not sure what I'll do. Maybe hire on at a ranch somewhere else. Why do you have to leave? Well, why do you need to leave? Kate asked. I have a bad reputation. People avoid me. I don't understand, she said. You're a great guy. You mean you haven't heard? I heard you spent a few months in reform school for killing an antelope. He looked down. Nine months. Got out early on good behavior. Good for you, she said. Doesn't matter. No one is impressed except my parents. And Mrs. D, she called me up and hired me back. She didn't have to do that. She's a sweet lady, Kate said. She's a good boss, too. So is Mr. D. I bet he was. Manuel paused for a moment. You think I'm a loser? Why would I think that? Kate asked. Because I had to go to reform school. She opened her mouth, closed it, then opened it again and plunged ahead. I'm probably more impressed than your parents that you got out early on good behavior. I've been there, done that, and have to confess that my own conduct worsened in reform school. Even in the muted light, she could see his eyes widen. He leaned forward. You're just saying that to make me feel better. No, it's the truth. I spent 18 months in a Pennsylvania reform school and five years in prison. She sighed, resigned to a total confession. Plus, I've been jailed more times than I remember. I've got a rap sheet as long as the Constitution. But I know that's not what will happen to you because... A loud bang fractured the quiet night. Kate raised her head. What? Here's a short story by... Danny Clark called The Slice. Slice it thinner, my mother said. It's all we have and we're having company. Mom was referring to the single loaf of homemade bread which lay before me on the old cutting board that pulled out from under the counter. It was not unusual in those days that close friends or relatives would invite themselves to share a meal whenever they were in the area, and often with little notice. Mom had already rounded up extra potatoes and carrots from the root cellar and was diligently peeling them with plans to add them to the stew already boiling on the old range. My father had returned from a trip to town to get feed for the chickens and grain for the steer we were fattening up to butcher in the fall. While there, he had run into his brother, who had also come to town with a like purpose. Uncle Tom and his family lived across the valley to the east of us on a little farm like our own. Tom and his wife, Pearl, had three sons and two daughters, who I had always considered my brothers and sisters. Tom was my hero. He was a real man's man. He had only four fingers on one hand as a result of carelessness while mowing hay, 
and walked with a limp as a result of his younger days when he broke wild horses and rode in the rodeo. In the day, as they now phrase it, in that day broken bones, which did not break the skin, were often left to heal on their own without medical attention. His upper leg had been badly broken when a horse fell both under and on top of him. He, no doubt being young, got back on the leg before it had healed properly. Okay, Mom, I answered, while trying hard to gauge what her definition of thin was. She looked over, smiled, and added, About the width of your finger, she instructed. I smiled and nodded. I was only ten years old, and my fingers were less than a half inch wide, which made the slices of bread paper thin. Beside me on the wooden floor, my sister Becky sat playing with a toy while our old dog made a half-hearted attempt to steal it away from her. A slamming screen door announced Dad's entry before he spoke. How's dinner coming? he asked Mom. I imagine Tom and Pearl will be here before dusk. Mom smiled and nodded. What we have will be ready in an hour. I put a berry cobbler in the oven for dessert. I smell it, he said returning her smile with a grin. Maybe I could give it a try before they get here. Mom made a futile attempt to swat him with a hot pad as he turned around and went back outside. Finished, I announced, looking down at the pile of bread with a sense of accomplishment. Good job. Now cover it with a dish towel and put it on the table with butter and jam, Mom instructed. I could hear the Johnny Popper start and was eager to get back outside where I could do man's work with my dad. The old one-lunger, as dad called it, was powered by a single massive one-cylinder engine that had a distinctive sound to it. Painted green, it also had the distinction to be the only tractor line that had chosen that color. Our little farm all was half its size and had two front tires rather than just one, which made it better for certain functions. I was unclear of what those things were, but had listened attentively to the men as they discussed such things. My dad, Ben, named after Benjamin Franklin, was a quiet, no-nonsense man of good humor who had an uncanny grasp of what was important in life. That is possibly why the community had chosen him as the interim pastor for our little Baptist church when the preacher died suddenly. I set mismatched bowls and saucers on the table, and all of our silverware, which was a hodgepodge of several sets bought and inherited from others. Can I go outside now? I asked. Mom looked over, checked out my work, then smiled and nodded. Grab yourself an apple and give me a yell when you see them coming, she said. My okay, Mom, was punctuated by the slamming screen door behind me. It was already a week into April and the snow had all melted and early spring rains had soaked right into the thirsty ground. Gentle winds had dried it out to the point of allowing the surface to crust and for equipment to begin to work it without danger of getting stuck. Hop on up, Dad said, extending his hand down to me. We'll go out and see how the plow weathered the winter. I grasped it and he lifted me effortlessly onto the seat in front of him. The blades of the double-bottomed plow had rusted until the steel was a brownish copper color, but after just a few passes, the soil would restore them to a shiny, bright silver color. For those without farming backgrounds, 
Most tractors do not have accelerator pedals like cars, but rather hand throttles that keep their engines running at a constant speed unless adjusted by the driver. As Dad increased the RPMs, the popping of the motor seemed to level out and run more smoothly when we headed out into the lower 20, where we commonly grew our grain. Looking back now, I'm amazed at the amount of knowledge the 10-year-old me had about the overall operation of the farm. The noise of the tractor made conversation impossible, so we traveled each with our own thoughts. A lever to the right side of the steering wheel operated the raising and lowering of the plow. Dad lowered it flawlessly as he increased the RPMs of the motor to accommodate the additional drag the plows created. Soon we were plowing the rich ground into furrows and burying the stubble from the previous year to provide humus and fertilizer as it rotted. As I looked backward, I got a sense of accomplishment at the soil which already showed man's hand in it. Do you want to drive? Dad asked, smiling. I'd hoped he'd let me someday, but was both surprised and pleased that this was the day. Sure, I answered while wondering if I was up to the task. The knuckle-buster knob fastened to the wheel gave the driver leverage to steal the ungainly mass of disjointed steel, but also put them in danger of injury if the big single tire was deflected suddenly by something which caused it to spin out of control. At Dad's urging, I grasped the knob tightly with both hands, moving it left or right only minimally. At the end of the field, He took back control and turned the tractor for another pass before giving control back to me. We made it four times the full length of the field before the telltale dust from our lane announced the arrival of our guests. I jumped down from the tractor with Dad's help and ran toward the house, announcing the news to Mom only a moment before they pulled up in the yard and stopped. The family of seven disembarked the old Chevy station wagon like a squad of militia, all talking and laughing at once as they walked toward our house where Mom and Dad stood waiting. Mom was holding Becky in her arms, and I stood importantly beside my father like an heir to the throne. Ben, Claire, Tom said as he and Pearl moved forward to shake hands and exchange hugs while their children hung back. It looks like little Ben and Rebecca are growing like weeds. I hated it when someone would call me little Ben rather than using my full name. It galled me further when they used Becky's full name as though she was some kind of royalty and I was just a slave. In hindsight, I'm sure Tom knew this about me and did it purposely. Please come in while I set the table, Mom invited. You kids wash up at the pump, then join us for dinner. I led my cousins to the pitcher pump in the yard where the wash pan, bar soap, and a towel awaited us and began to pump the handle to get a prime. Ted held the pan underneath while it filled, then set it on the stump while we all gathered around. He seemed to have grown several inches since I'd seen him last at Christmas. We'd been about the same size, but now he towered above me. Ted was helping Sissy wash her hands, and John was soaping up while the rest of us waited our turn. To this very day, I have never heard anyone call Sissy by her given name. Don't even know what it is. Hurry up, Mom yelled from the front porch. Your dinner is getting cold. 
The goal now became speed and not efficiency as each of us soaped and rinsed and dried our dirty little biscuit grabbers, then ran to the house where the grown-ups waited at the table. As Mom filled the bowls, it was apparent to me that she and Dad had taken only half portions, and I did the same. Even at my young age, I knew that company came first. Milk, and a lot of it, filled out the wrinkles in my stomach, which the small bowl of stew hadn't. The berry cobbler was still hot when Mom spooned it onto our dishes and added thick, rich cream. After the meal was finished, it was the custom that the men would adjourn to the front porch and talk man talk, while the women and sometimes children washed and dried the dishes. This time, Mom sent us kids outside to play while she and Pearl and the two little ones stayed behind. I drove the John Deere today. I bragged to Cousin Ted while the others listened in awe. Ain't no big thing, he answered carelessly. I drive our Chalmers all the time. I was disappointed by his response, so I prepared a fitting reply. You mean the Alice Chalmers, don't you? I think that's a sissy name. I'll bet the Johnny could pull her down the field backwards. His green eyes narrowed, and by the set of his jaw, I may well have stepped over the line a tad. Maybe we'll see about that, he challenged. I'll ask Dad if we can have a tug of war. In for a penny, in for a pound. I raised my head and looked him directly in the eyes and said, Okay, let's go ask him right now. The four of us boys ran like our hair was on fire toward the front porch, where surprise or concern showed plainly on Dad and Tom's faces. Is something wrong? Dad asked the breathless boys. Ted jutted out his chin and spoke directly to his father. Benjamin thinks their old broken-down Johnny Popper can out-pull the Chalmers. The hint of a smile passed quickly across my dad's lips, but he said nothing while his older brother absorbed the information. How do you propose to find out? Tom asked, looking directly at me. I hesitated only a moment before I answered. A tug-of-war. Looking back now, I could see the brothers still had a bit of competitive spirit left in them, which hard work and the years had not erased. You game? Dad asked his brother. I'm game, Tom answered, offering his hand to the younger brother. What's the bet? Neither man was a gambler, nor had money to spare. So the conversation lulled for a few moments before my dad asked, how about if the loser harvests the other man's hay crop? Cut and stack? Tom challenged. Ben laughed. Sounds right. I'll take my missus on vacation while you get it done. First cutting, Tom clarified, or all three? First is enough, Ben chided. At your age, I expect that will be about all you can handle. Tom ignored his brother. We kids listened quietly, sneaking furtive looks at each other as the challenge continued to take shape. Where? Dad asked. It's half a day coming and going between our farms. Tom thought for a moment and smiled and suggested, What if we meet in town on the 4th of July and give them a show? Dad nodded. I like it. Town is about halfway and the women can cook us up a picnic to eat after. Their wives seemed less than enthusiastic when their husbands shared the news with them, but immediately began planning the picnic meal together without comment.
When they left for home, I could feel that things had changed between Ted and I and felt badly that the whole thing had gotten so out of control. I never did find out how the word of the contest had gotten out among the townsfolks, but somehow it had. Although still more than two months away, never a day passed that someone at school didn't bring it up. At the barbershop, there was a homemade poster announcing the event and a board where you could place a wager. The Chalmers was a few years newer than the Johnny and boasted something over 30 horsepower. But as Dad said, the one lunger had more torque and had new bigger tires on it. As I watched my father over the next month as he tuned and polished the green monster, I wondered if Uncle Tom was home doing the same. Late in June, I walked home from school to find the Johnny on blocks with the rear wheels off the ground. Concerned, I walked around the tractor and watched as Ed was slowly filling the rear tires with water. Loading, Dad called it. Adding water would increase traction and lower the center of gravity of the tractor, making it more efficient. School was out for the year. The crops were in the ground and coming up nicely, and Dad had let me drive the tractor several times almost without his direction. I was 11 now, a fifth grader, and was adding pounds to my scarecrow frame. It seemed like I was hungry all the time. I'm going to talk with Tom and suggest that you boys drive the tractors on the 4th, Dad said one day as we walked back from the field. Cold hands gripped my heart. Fear of disappointing Dad was all I could think of. I tried to act nonchalant when I answered, Nah, not this year. Maybe next. I think you are ready, he insisted. You've got a good head on your shoulders. You can do it. I didn't answer. I didn't know how to tell him that I was afraid. I just hoped he'd change his mind and forget the whole thing. He didn't. Party line was what it was called in those days. Clusters of from four to six telephone customers shared a dedicated line and took turns using it, but not without difficulty, spawned from the selfish heart of man. A user might get on the phone and tie it up for hours, ignoring others' attempts to have a turn. When his turn came... Dad dialed his brother's number and waited as it rang. Hello, Pearl answered. Who is this? Hi, Pearl. This is Ben, Dad answered. How are you folks getting along? She answered, and they talked for a few minutes before he asked, Is Tom there? Tom, it's Ben. He wants to talk to you, she was heard to say in a raised voice. Hi, Ben, Tom said, taking the phone from his wife. You calling to back out of the bet? No such luck, big brother. I'm calling to sweeten the pot. Dad laughed. Meaning? Tom asked skeptically. Meaning that we let the boys do the driving and the loser buys the winner dinner at the Grange Hall. Would you do, buy yourself a new tractor? Or have you lost your mind? Tom laughed. There's seven of us, only four of you. Win or lose, you're getting the short end of the stick. I'll take my chances, Dad answered. So, do we have a deal or not? I wanted to cry as I listened to Dad's side of the conversation. I knew that we couldn't afford to buy them dinner and that I couldn't win. After Dad hung up the phone, he smiled, ruffled up my hair and said, He went for it. We got him right where we want him. He did, however, caution me not to share the new information with my mother. It really doesn't matter who wins or loses, 
What does matter is that we are family and we love each other. When the time comes, you get up on the tractor, say a prayer, and you do your best. God will determine the outcome, Dad said. For the next week, Dad showed me the finer points of the tractor, including how to shift using the makeshift blocks attached to the clutch and brake pedals. It was about all I could do to depress the clutch with my skinny legs. Did I mention that our Johnny was a G model as opposed to the A and B models? I thought not. The A was the earlier model, and the B was a smaller one. Ours was a huskier and more powerful than either. We took the Green Giant to town on the 3rd of July, where we met Tom and his family with their old Alice Chalmers. Citizens of the town gathered, cheered, and speculated on the upcoming match as we parked them back-to-back and fastened a massive chain to them. The chain that had been borrowed from somewhere had links three inches long and three-fourths of an inch in diameter, more than adequate to bind the two farm tractors. The crowd was already gathered around the two tractors when we arrived. They were noisily sharing their opinions of which tractor would be the winner. Tom and his brood joined us minutes later in good humor with broad smiles. A carnival atmosphere hung over the small town, anxiously awaiting the normal scheduled 4th of July events that included horse racing, sack races, baking and sewing contests, and of course, the small circus assembled just outside of the city limits. Several dozen watermelons were cooling in a stock tank nearby, waiting for participants in the melon-eating contest. We were, however, without a doubt, the featured attraction. Dad stood beside the Johnny as I crawled up into the seat, smiling proudly. Behind us, Tom did the same when Ted duplicated my movements. Start her up, he coached, as he had at home many times before. Depress the clutch and pull her back into low gear. You shouldn't need to shift or use the brake. Leave it in low and gradually pull down on the throttle as you let the clutch part of the way out. Take it slow and easy as you take the slack out of the chain, but wait until the judge tells you to go and let it out the rest of the way and pull the throttle down to here at the same time. Dad was pointing to where he'd scratched a mark at about three-fourths of the full throttle. If he starts getting the best of you, give her more throttle. If you are moving ahead, let her be right there where she is, he said. If your wheels start to spin, ease her back a touch. When we started the tractors up, a great cheer went up from the crowd of familiar, smiling faces. I was both proud and terrified at the same time. A cloud of blue smoke hung above us in the air as both engines came to life. I remember looking back over my shoulder at Ted, who had done the same. We exchanged smiles, then turned back to the business at hand. Tighten up the chain, the mayor, who was serving as judge, ordered. I began to let out the clutch, but was jerked back sharply when Ted beat me to it. I panicked and let the clutch out too quickly and killed the motor. Push her back down, start it back up, and let it out real smooth, Dad shouted over the din. This time I fared better as the old Johnny put a strain on the chain and idled down to a deep, throaty, throbbing beat. I no longer heard the crowd nor the sound of the Chalmers. All I could hear was the John Deere and the sound of my own heart beating in my chest. Go! the mayor shouted. 
the big chains seemed to almost stretch as both tractors settled down on their haunches like big cats, getting ready to spring and then begin to rip the top off the bare, dry earth underneath. Dad was smiling ear to ear when I looked down at him, tears in the corners of his eyes. Behind me, without a doubt, Tom looked the same way as he coached his son. We filled the air with dirt and smoke, seesawing back and forth for what seemed like an eternity, each of us seeming to make progress before losing it again and being towed backward. Time, the mayor shouted after it became apparent that there was to be no clear winner. I'm calling this a draw. When Dad nodded, I turned off the ignition and crawled down to a hero's welcome. Ted did the same before running over to me and sticking out his hand for a shake. I gave him a big hug instead and choked back tears of joy. We haven't done kid chuckles in a while, so I have a few for you today. Uh, During this season, Elisa was seven, Toby was five, and Brady was just turning two. Alisa, who was uh, speaking of a few days ago, said, you know, yesterday and the day behind that. Brady, who's just beginning to talk, um, played with a toy for a while, and then he said, nuff, nuff, nuff. And he was done with that. Brady's second birthday was fun. He helped us sing and had a great time opening gifts, but he pouted when he had to eat cake instead of candles. Yuck, he said, but he gobbled it down anyway. When I asked him what was in his ear, he said, lunch. I asked him if he was sure about that, and he said, yeah, Toby, honey, ear. I'm not sure what that was all about, but uh, (laughs) that was his story. Toby said that he knew that when Jesus came to take us to heaven, he would take our skin off. And he also knew that a pizza pie is first a pizza, and then it's a pie. I overheard him wandering through the kitchen at 3 p.m. saying, Toby's poor tummy is so hungry. Brady, now too, sleeps with his brother on what he calls bump beds, and he has a kiss sequence. Uh, First, it's the I fly, which is a butterfly kiss, and then it's wipe nose, which is the Eskimo kiss, and then it's whips, which are lips. My sister and her husband adopted a baby boy, and they named him Carrick Page. And Elisa said she thought um, that name was like character. And Toby said that we'll think of Carrick Page when we turn pages. He also said that the restaurant Mr. Steak is where they make lots of mistakes, which could be true. One day when I was running errands, um, I stopped by a friend's house to take something inside and Toby said that, well, I should back up and say I told the kids to stay in the car. And Toby said it was so they wouldn't ruin up the prettiness, which which might have been true. Elisa lost a tooth 
in this time period. In her note to the tooth, Fairy said, I want my money. <laughs> and one more. Toby and Steve were having a conversation. I don't know what about. But I heard Toby say to Steve, That much? It's a big chunk of much. Thanks for listening. That's going to do it for now. Until next time, happy reading. Thank you for listening to Let Me Tell You a Story. Please email your comments, suggestions, and submissions to story at beckylyles.com. Steve and Becky like to hear your thoughts, and they encourage authors to send stories and other short prose and poetry for them to read on the podcast. You can learn more about Becky's books by visiting beckylyles.com or by searching for her books online. Her nonfiction titles can be found under the name Becky Lyles and her fiction under Rebecca Carrie Lyles. All of her books are available in both print and ebook formats. Winds of Wyoming and Winds of Freedom are also offered in audio format online. That's all for now. Tune in next time to enjoy a fresh assortment of stories on Let Me Tell You a Story.